Are we recording? Oh yeah! It's like <laughs> a year from now. Macho. Oh man, that's Vincy. I like that my kids know that I'm healthy and strong and fit, and that their mom is healthy and strong and fit. Going, okay, I can still get better without having to do a max effort every single day. Smashing yourself on the roller for uh, an hour, right? you're good by the next day as long as you had a sandwich and a net. In today's episode, we are going to try to provide um, some good examples or some, I guess, some real world examples of how the concept of movement smoothness uh, appears in kind of, uh, I guess, in, I guess, an everyday sport, and then and then probably more so. Um, with regards to how it how it fits into your training and how it fits into the sport of fitness. So what's the first example we're gonna do? Let's do the snatch training one. Sure. Yeah, so when it comes to snatching, <clears throat> obviously if, if you're familiar with the sport at all or, or the, the sport of weightlifting at least, you know that snatching is a very complex movement. And so when the movement is complex, you wanna try and do it. And you're talking about, well, let's just talk about it in the context of a beginner. Let's just call it, so we don't confuse people, let's just call it high skill. High skill. Because sure. we're going to save complexity for what we're talking about with smoothness and yeah. neuromuscular complexity. That's fair. So a high skill movement like a snatch. So for someone like uh, someone who's a beginner, when you're laying out their training like session. Matt Brady. Matt Brady, like. yeah. <laughs> um, you want to you put something like snatching first before anything else. So you, you, you'd want to put it before squatting, anything that's going to cause any sort of fatigue that will potentially adversely affect the person's ability to perform that snatch. Um, and the reason you want to do that, one of the reasons you want to do that is you want the person to be able to experience experience the snatch itself, non-fatigue, so they can they can really kind of grasp that that movement and hone in on that skill to to develop the skill of, of snatching adequately and become competent in that skill. If you start if you add it second, for example, after a, a back squat, their legs are a little bit fatigued. That's going to increase the potential for, well, they're going to be fatigued, obviously, and then it's going to uh, potentially increase um, the force variability of, of the snatch. So they may not be as accurate with each and every rep compared to if they did that first, not under fatigue, for yeah, example. Yeah, they just don't have the, they don't have the ability, right? So you're saying so the reason you put it first is so that you can have them experience snatching in the way we you would believe that snatching is uh, or sorry you would have them pr- uh, experience it in the way that we would believe is most beneficial mm-hmm. to their training. Yeah. Doing it second after back squats may interfere with that mm-hmm. because you may be reducing um, the complexity of the neuromuscular system just from accumulation of fatigue. Mm-hmm. And again, it's not that they it's not that they like, they want to do it well. It's that they are unable to do it in the way that you're asking them. And we were just chatting about this first before we got on here. But um, it's two things. One, they can't control it. They can't control the fact that they would have some fatigue accumulating. They can't get rid of it for that day. They had to come back later. Um, and two, you can't really see it. It's really hard to see. Like extremely hard. Not, not extremely hard impossible <laughs> you can't see it um that's why you have to use science and logic to go this is why we would want to put this first when you say you can't see it, you mean you as the coach you, you as the, the coach athlete? cannot see it you as the athlete if you're new to it you can't you don't know idea what's happening mm-hmm. you're just i'm just doing it yeah um if you're a really really 
well-trained athlete like an Olympic lifter, you're probably, you can probably feel it. You're like, yeah, it's not right. Like there's just, I'm off here. So I got to go down today and like, or just take a break. Right. Yeah. Cause it just, it's not feeling correct. Right. So then you know that there's something wrong cause it doesn't feel the way it's supposed to. Or it just, it feels right. And you miss for some reason. It's like one of those things that you can't necessarily understand at that point. Whereas like if you could measure independently, all the little parts of your body, they'll, drop in in complexity mm -hmm. you, you you could find it but you can't necessarily see or feel the difference mm -hmm. yeah like in the the the, uns, the unsaid the, because the unwritten thing here or the uns, the non non-stated thing we're trying to get at is that with beginners you want their snatching each rep to look somewhat similar to the previous uh, and you basically you would want it to look almost identical okay but knowing that every rep is not identical, if you were to actually measure it, there's and there's never going to be identical. You're not going to have two reps back to back to the exact same. They might look the same to you as a coach, which is what you're really going for. But if you were to accurately measure it, it's not the same. But they're somewhat similar, and that's what you're going for. Um, yeah. When you just think of a, a gymnastic example, yeah, the, or the double under example we were talking about. I, I like the 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 pull-up one the butterfly pull-up chest to bar because mm -hmm. that's very easily seen when i actually have a good example from a client sent me a video the other day but i'll yeah. talk about it later yeah it's like you can see very quickly when smoothness starts to to disappear complexity starts to disappear and the force output variability goes up and you can it, it would look a lot like what is that what they the rowers talk about rigging and the same thing would happen with the elbow and shoulder and someone trying to do a max set of butterfly chest to bar you'll see it go from smooth long ellipses and long body position to all of a sudden jerky and and some kind of weird funky kip Segmented. that just allows a with, someone a lot to, with the legs right yeah, the knees yeah it'll allow someone to to make the movement standard but it is not the same movement as what they started with mm -hmm. yeah it's a uh, it, it that's a great example and uh, like with the elite with the top end competitors right you it's much it's much harder to even find that right because either they're when they perform they don't usually push themselves to that point because they know there's a big problem if they're going to go there right unless it's the very end um and they're just probably so trained that like they can get extremely fatigued before they're going to have a, any noticeable drop in their movement smoothness but one example would be, I went, and I can't say for sure because I only saw the last, I only really paid attention to the last 100 pull-ups from that games event with the vest and that. Um, and watch If you watch Carrie Pierce in like the last 50 pull-ups, you can see a noticeable change in her the way her elbow is moving on the descent. It looks jerky. Um, and the point of it is, is that she can't stop it. There's no way to stop it. And the, the what Jason mentioned earlier about the rigging, I think I first heard, heard this term from people who are in track and doing the 800s and 1600s. And if you've ever, if you've ever done an, eight, an 800 and you've <laughs> done it poorly, uh, and basically you come around the last corner and you're just locked up because you can't finish, you have no smoothness left. It's all gone because you basically depleted all of the, all of the work prime. So you have, you have extremely low energy resources uh, remaining, and all you can do is run at the critical speed, basically. Um, but you're now at the critical speed with extreme amounts of muscular fatigue. <laughs> so it just, it looks and it may not look, but it feels like you are, you are the stiffest person ever running. You're just like, I am just, 
barely trying to get across this line and I feel like there's a parachute behind me like holding me back <laughs> um, and an example people use and I've experienced this as well on uh, rowing on water um, but people talk about this with rigging with on the rower so the stroke just the stroke just changes you just feel super stiff um, and it starts becoming segmented and it's not smooth right and the user can feel it it might be harder to see for someone else but a really a really trained coach or really high experienced coach would notice um, so I don't know if you'd call it rigging on a pull-up bar, but, um, you know. It's well, that would be what, r- rig mortis. Yeah. So, <laughs> it, so it, that's especially, yeah. you're, you're, you're yeah, rigging it's up. Just, it's just, yeah, it's, it's interesting, right? Interesting concept. But so it's that, it's again, it's the obvious stuff. Like you get tired, you, you reduce, like you have less energy available and you're like, yeah, I'm getting fatigued. Yeah, you're getting fatigued. Um, but one of the things that are going along with this fatigue is an uncontrollable change in the movement kinematics. You, it's an uncontrollable adjustment. You can't, you can't change it because you're becoming constrained somewhat just because of the fatigue of the neuromuscular system. So go back to the beginner example we used with the, <clears throat> with the snatch initially. If we're, if we're using the chest bar example, like doing it in isolation, not under fatigue, is going to be the best approach. And in a, in a rep range that they're capable of maintaining that, that smoothness throughout the entire set yeah. with appropriate rest so they can repeat that effort to make the reps look as close to similar as possible every set yeah so if you were just to, if you were just to design training for skilled stuff only through the window the lens of looking at smoothness you you wouldn't be you wouldn't do it really poorly like you'd be going if you're always looking for content consistency and smooth looking reps relative to that person obviously because some people they're never going to have that for whatever reason and quick example of that is people with like uh, people who have a lack of thoracic extension or some type of shoulder extension they can't stack their arms over the head well their kip their butterfly pull-up is never going to look smooth Mm -hmm. it's not it's always going to look a little weird um but it's going to look there's relative smoothness for them right so if you were just to always design training with that in mind it wouldn't be that bad especially with beginners right because you're always you're always the, the context is always the movement itself and looking how it's doing and trying to guard against excess fatigue and they're tr- therefore trying to provide adequate rest to therefore what you're really trying to deliver is the optimal training experience well what you assume is the optimal training experience we have to say that as opposed to going yeah well i want to work on my chest of our pull-ups but i want to work on it in metcons you're like but you can't do you can't do five you can't do five good chest bar pull ups per minute for five minutes. There's no there's no there's no there's no upside to you practicing practicing it under fatigue. That's the polish a turd mentality. It's like it's it's currently a piece of crap. Why do we want to sharpen that up? <laughs> it's like <laughs> let's t- let's maybe keep molding this into something else because right now it's not good and we need to try to make it good before we worry about how you perform under fatigue. Well, you could also, you could have that set way of training and then try to improve someone's critical torque mm-hmm. on the opposite side. So, Which is strength. Yeah, which is the strength portion of it. So then all of a sudden you're hitting it from both angles where you're improving so you pr- their p- position yeah. technique. Um, the smoothness part doesn't degrade. And then you're also improving their critical torque, which means that those pull-ups would then yeah. be less above critical torque. Yeah. So if you just pick the biceps as an example of what's the critical uh, torque of the bicep. So again, the critical torque is um, is basically the, the the highest sustainable neuromuscular uh, output or high sustainable neuro, uh, metabolic rate for that for the bicep. One of the things that's improving training or improving movement smoothness should do 
is to reduce the ATP or energy requirement per repetition or per unit of time, right? So that in of itself will reduce every rep or lower every rep either closer to the critical torque, right? That's what it should be doing, every rep. And by getting stronger, you're trying to raise the critical torque, right? And by improving your actual blood flow to the arm, you're trying to also raise the critical torque. So you have two things happening. You're trying to close that gap, right, from where, the, where that force output is relative to the critical torque of the bicep. And then you're trying to raise, you're trying to lower the critical torque, or sorry, you're trying to lower the force output required for every one of those reps. Now, basically, the ex how expensive it is, and you're trying to then raise the relative critical torque of the bicep in two ways: strength and therefore uh, blood delivery, oxygen delivery. So, that's that, that's a uh, I'm not sure how we got to that point, but that that's really what you're trying to do, mm -hmm. right? And if you just thought about designing training like that, and it goes ac it goes across uh, a lot of skills, right? you're not going to go that wrong. <clears throat> like, it's not going to be that bad. You're going to develop people who are really good at those skills, but you, and then, which is a totally different discussion, then you have to, you have to graduate them past that, right? Um, and then into the actual sport, because that's not how the sport is. Well, I mean, like, it, loss of complexity is, is uh, ever prevalent in CrossFit, though, because yeah. every single movement is above a critical torque. Mm -hmm. and and above your critical pace and that's why you can't do it forever so understanding where and why things break down and how to train around that like because then you can use that and be like when would it be a benefit for elite athletes to train with a reduced complexity and why or, yeah. or was there is there a potential yeah. benefit for it yeah because it is what the sport demands yeah but <clears throat> yeah it's um Again, like the training, most people are doing their training in an underlying way of trying to guard against fatigue, right? What's well, what you're really trying to do? You're trying to guard against fatigue so you can keep doing what you're trying to do, both mechanically and perceptually. You're trying to keep doing it, right? And your training should be based around how do I get as good as possible so I can stay at this level of effort and just go faster? Or how can I perform this level of effort and make it feel better? So well, then I know at the at this point in the, in the event I can go even faster because it doesn't perceptually feel as hard mechanically and neuromuscularly it's not as difficult either. Um, that's really what you're going after. But then how do you train for that? That's a whole other story. But that like what I just mentioned earlier about the just thinking about a bicep and a, and a pull up, those are really just in terms of the power duration stuff um, and critical torque. That's what you're trying to do, right? You're trying to have those things. You're trying to close the gap on that. Because that's that's the most optimal scenario. You have an educated athlete, and you're closing the gap. That you, that, that person's getting better. That's 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 how that works. Mm -hmm. They're getting better. Um, but then you think of training scenarios. So, again, the example being like even for elite level people, like it, again, I, I can't say that because I don't I don't really I don't coach anybody that's elite, mm -hmm. right? I don't coach anyone that goes to the games every year and finishes top five, top ten. I don't have any of those clients, um, so I can't say what you should do with them. Um, but for people who are like basically elite, um, like even the idea that it's just it, like, it, this is where we get into the fatigue weightlifting discussion, I suppose. But like, if you, if you, like in CrossFit, you have to do, you have to be able to clean your clean, basically your max clean or near your max or, um, or snatch or whatever. And you have to be able to do it, uh, in various forms of fatigue. Uh, and that being like, you have to be able to do it with your legs fatigued, with your forearms fatigued, with your deltoids fatigue with your back fatigue with your app like you have to be able to do it in all these different formats so you have to be able to then adapt your movement to this new context of this of these p different peripheral fatigue 
settings that you're going to be pushed into. But the question is, is that so uh, if in this test, like, um, yeah, I guess the, the question is if, if in a test like uh, was a 16.2 and your max clean is for the for the men or the women is like right at the last bar. So the last bar in that workout, and I believe they did, didn't do it again this year. 16.2? Something, something like it. Yeah, last year. yeah anyway. Um, where the last clean for the men is three three fifteen for seven, right? And the last clean for the women is two oh five for seven. Um, if your max clean is that weight, um, and you're like, man, I need to get better at that workout. Like, I don't. Again, the point of it is, is like, I don't know that training to a point where you are completely obliterated and then trying to hit your three fifteen clean, even four times a month, is a good idea. I just don't. I don't think it's a good idea. Because there's a couple, there's a couple missing points um, that can't be that that can't be that can't be uh, replicated in those scenarios, uh, and the missing points in those scenarios is that it's not a competition, it's not an actual competition, and therefore your motivation is reduced. That's a and that's a gigantic problem, um, because your willingness to do it is going to change, and then that potentially will change how your neuromuscular output is. Um, but that being said. The, my thinking is that it's better to just do slices of that type of training, right? Instead of doing the full the full meal deal, like it's better to just do little slices of it. And what I mean is, if you're trying to get better at doing three fifteen cleans under fatigue, again, the one of the one of the things that you have to understand is that you don't know what type of fatigue you're going to have to be under. You don't know, right? You have an idea. You're like, I don't know what movement's going to come before it, so we might as well practice different scenarios of all of it. Um, but I still take the submaximal approach in that that's the best way to train is to do repeated slices of it and then gradually try to increase it and bury it. So I would rather have someone do like one clean starting at like uh, maybe 225 and add five pounds per set for 12 to 15 sets and do like 10 calories on the air bike around the critical power and have them do that every two minutes for 12 to 15 sets. Because that that'll, that's going to give this person little little bits of, infra, of of practice is what you're trying to get them to do, okay? But you're going to have them perform that clean in an actually, in my opinion, a more adaptable environment because they're not going to be they're, they're not going to have such a loss of complexity that it then potentially becomes damaging to them. And this is what I mean by you can't see it is because you don't know what the lumbar spine is doing. You don't know. Like you you have no idea. You think it looks okay. You have no idea what those micro movements are. You have no idea. Okay. Um, you also have no idea as to what's happening at the knee when you're receiving it. You might land well. It might look good. The assumption is that it's good. You don't know what that's doing for one year later, right? So my opinion is that in order in both to get both things, to have them have optimal practice and to, and to actually hopefully have some form of safety um, where you're not putting like sport context above absolutely everything um, is to do it in that manner. And, I, and because you're trying to have them experience that movement with some form of complexity involved in their legs and their spine because they're not that fatigued. That's kind of the real world, real world example of what I'm talking about with this. I guess what, and that's kind of what, what Jason was kind of getting at. So Tom said, I think you're going to get more longevity that way. You don't know, right? Because you're probably going to do more volume that way. Like you're going to do more reps at higher weight as opposed to, Okay, Tom, I want you to do like basically five minute AMRAP of uh, of like five bar muscle ups and fifteen thrusters at sixty five pounds, and in the next five minutes you're gonna do a max clean. Mm -hmm. We already know 
you already know that basically by that point, um, by, by the time Tom gets towards the end of the 10-minute mark, so he has that last five minutes to do the cleans, he's going to feel pretty okay. And the training, and obviously his training leading up to it, is going to guard against that fatigue. So he's going to be able to retain some complexity. Um, but I just don't, I personally don't understand, I, I don't see how that's that valuable to him as opposed to having him practice it in the other format and giving him that one very infrequently. Because, like, and you can just answer this yourself, Tom, like, you're not a dummy. Like, as an athlete, you're not a dummy. So you know how to do this stuff. You should just go, I just need some little bit of practice here and there in these scenarios, and I got it. Mm -hmm. That's how you should be thinking of it and going, like, I got this. I know I can do it. If, you, if you're the type of person who says, I need to have, have experienced that exact scenario 17 times prior to doing it, you're going to lose mm -hmm. because it's never going to happen. You're never going to have the opportunity. So you need to take that excuse and throw it away because you're never going to have that opportunity to go, well, I don't practice it under fatigue. It's like, yeah, you do. Uh, but you just don't know what fatigue is. You don't know what it's doing. Mm -hmm. um, you just, you just, I would just say you just need to maybe trust yourself a little more and go, this is going to be sufficient for me because I'm getting the practice I need. It's effective, it's obviously intensive, and the last one, it's hopefully safe, okay? It's hopefully safe. Yeah, and that, that, that'd, be my, that'd be my guess, my conjecture, right? Um, two real-world examples of kind of how that makes sense to kind of bring this in, if we're gonna talk. Do you guys have any examples, anything else? Any other gr good examples? We haven't mentioned the Zeus, Zeus rope one. That's probably a good one. Um, we can mention that afterwards. <clears throat> Any comments on that? No, I had a thought regarding the. And I guess re the real example is that we're I'm talking about doing work rest, work rest, work rest sets of max effort lifting or even really intensive gymnastics, as opposed to doing uh, let's go for broke and let's have you do instead of doing one clean every two minutes at ten <coughs> sets after doing air bike, let's have you do a hundred calories in the air bike and then do ten cleans at three fifteen. Right? Well, and then doing it that way that you're talking about like yeah it's hard it's intensive you're accumulating a lot of volume but it shouldn't smash you at least not to the extent that the other format does right so then <clears throat> the idea is that hopefully it doesn't impact future days of training so you can still have quality training days after an intensive style format like that right so you can still squat relatively intensely yeah. a day or two later whereas if you're doing 16.2 or that format you know, on a regular basis, that's going to impact quality of other training days, right? Mm -hmm. And it, this is, yeah, I, I, I think of that as the difference between like you're doing, you're going for adaptation versus going for experience. Mm -hmm. So when you do 16.2, you're going for the experience of it. You're trying to figure it out. When you do what I suggested earlier, you're going for adaptation mm -hmm. and experience too, because you're obviously going to have that. But the goal is to, is to actually learn how to do this. As opposed to go, let's figure out what happens when I get to the end here and Training see if I can. Testing. Yeah, basic. Yeah, a basic. Uh, and again, people would ar can argue with that, and there's lots of ways to argue with it because it goes back to the person. If the person, if the, because the individual can change it. Like you can change the test in and of itself when you do it. If you're, this is going to a totally different discussion, but if you're, if you know, like, and I, I would do this all the time with my training. Um, like I just change the way I'm going to do it. And that changes how, like how the test runs, right? Mm. Like I don't go into it going like, if I had to do sixteen two, I would do it a certain way. Even even when I was practicing for it, when I would do it, I'd be like, I'm just doing it like this because I'm just trying to get this little bit of confidence and do it. But I would never approach it like I would the actual test, mm -hmm. right? 
So you, so it, it so it kind of became effective training for me because I'm like, I'm going to try it like this, I'm going to do it this way, and I'm going to underdo it the whole time, and I'm going to know I'm underdoing it, and when I finish, I'm not going to be disappointed because I'm like, I'm doing this to try to just get the little deal out of it, right? So it, and this, that's just one example. You can approach it any other way, and anybody who trains regularly knows that how you approach the test and what what intention you have with it will change how you even run it. So you could give someone the same test back to back weeks. One time it's a training session, one time it's a test, and you know that. Like you know mm-hmm. that. Um, the two examples I wanted to give, which I, I read from these, um, was it the same article or different? No, different articles. Um, one of them was, um, so and just to go, just to kind of bridge the gap again. So we talk about complexity and loss of complexity, and therefore loss of smoothness over the course of a lifetime. They have they had these people do a really simple test where all you had to do is stand on a force plate, <laughs> literally, just stand there. And they said, we want you to stand as still as possible. And I think they made them close their eyes. I actually think they made them do that, but I can't remember. So just forget that. Um, so they, I think they had to stand there. And I don't know how long it was. Like maybe it was like a minute, five minutes, I don't know. And what they did was they just measured the, for, the, pre, the, force, the, the pressure on their feet, right? And if you look, and, and, and again, they had, they had this, like, this little line uh, basically deviating from zero, going across on the x-axis. And the y-axis is obviously the difference between what they considered the center of mass. So how much did the person deviate? How much sway did the person have? And therefore, they measured the deviation, which is the variation of force output. Um, and then they measured the complexity of that sway. Okay. So as you would expect with a youthful person, I think they had them like 30, a 30-year-old healthy male, they considered him. Um, the variation or the sway, the, the degree of sway or the, or the I guess the total, um, the, the total amount of variation was small. It was very small. And the complexity was extremely high. So if you, lo- if you looked at what that little force output looked like, so um, it, again, it had a lot of noise to it. It had a lot of complexity to it, but it had a small amount of tight variation, right? which is in terms of accuracy. And this is just simply someone trying to stand still, okay? And this is where it goes to everything is about variability. It's all variability. And that's a, that's a great example of it. And all they're trying to do is not move. And you're not, you're not gonna not move. You're going to move the whole time. But how much you not move <laughs> depends on the complexity of the system. And as they go towards someone who's like a healthy 70, 80 year old man, there's massive amounts of sway. And again, they're asked to stand and not move. Okay. And then, but there is, and and it's just less complex in nature and there's way more variability in terms of the sway. And again, this is just because again, when, when you're asked to stand still, you're going to always gravitate kind of around the center of mass and it's going to make this little signature and a very high complex neuromuscular system makes those, makes those adjustments so easily that it, that it has this very small variation and a very smooth look to it. And then they have another person who uh, I believe they had a stroke and then they had more variation in their, th- in, their uh, in their sway because they just they can't stay still, right? And then when they try to stay still, these little perturbations, it becomes a big problem because the overcorrection is poor. And then it overcorrects again and over and just makes this really big sway look in, and they're trying to stay still, okay? That's one example. So that's how it degrades over a lifetime, which we mentioned in our first episode. Um, and another great example I was just talking to the guys about was these soccer players, these young soccer players. I think they're 20 or 25 years old. And they had, I can't remember, it was probably, it's probably 100 markers on their right leg uh, from their ankle up to their hip, and I believe on their low back as well. 
Uh, and what they were asking these people to do was to run in a straight run in a straight line, and they had a force plate. I it was probably built into the floor, the force plate. So they run, and then on the force plate, they were told to cut and go in basically a 45-degree angle. So they were told to run up to the force plate, cut with the right leg, and then change direction, go into the 45-degree angle. They had these people do it, I believe it was like every minute or so for five minutes, and they'd get like kind of a summation of their scores. And then you have these people do... A fit, like a running like a like a running test. I think it was like a VO2 max test. So it, was, it wasn't that long, um, but it was fatiguing. And then as soon as they finished the VO2 max test, like within the minute, they started again every minute for five minutes. Perform this one cut on the force plate. Uh, and what you would and, and what we're talking about here is that two things happened. One, like if you were to look at it, you can't tell that there was a difference. You would look and watch these people and go. I don't know that there's any difference in that cut. I can't. I, I can't tell it. When you measure it, there's a there's a significant change, and it's all negative. <laughs> but it, it it can't even say it's negative because it's reality. It's not negative. It's just the reality of things. The negative part is that which is which is what these researchers are looking for is the change in kinematics of the leg moved more towards what the usual occurrence of ACL tears is when people plant. Um, and they, they, what they get into is like what fatigue is doing is changing the variability of the movement, likely as a as a, just a result of the fatigue, because the movement is becoming constrained and they can't they can't do the what what they're trying to do with it. Okay, and you had to remember these are people who do this all the time, right? They train to do this all the time and they try to guard against it and get good at it. Even under fatigue, they can't do it the way they're supposed to do it fresh, right? So. If you think your clean at 315 looks the same, actually looks the same at rep 10 as rep 1, you're delusional. You just are. You're delusional. Um, so you have to know that ahead of time. And again, it's not to say you shouldn't do it because you have to, you, but, you, but you have to do it in a way that's not going to be a car crash. And I just worry that most people, one, don't move well enough in general, and they're setting themselves up for failure, and which we're getting at here with the complexity aspect, you're adding an unseen element that is dangerous. So would a training benefit for that scenario in uh, CrossFitters be if if you can't do what you do when you're fresh at at when you're at 15, uh, rep 10 and you're fatigued, are you then learning what you can do? Like, so yeah. all these nine out of 10 options yeah. aren't available for you anymore, mm -hmm. but this one still is. Yeah. And it may be that it is it is much more likely to be like those soccer players the pattern that that is more likely to cause acl strain is more likely that this type of movement and clean can cause some sort of mm -hmm. in, injury but it's the one option that you do have under fatigue so it's not great to practice that one but it's like but you have to yeah you have to uh, not frequently uh, anyway. not frequently because then you're you're in that realm of acl terry like not yeah. for cleans, but like because if you don't if you don't introduce that aspect, you're not you're not you're not you're just not being a good coach for this yeah. sport. Yeah. So then, but how much do you introduce it? Right. Mm -hmm. Like think of it like dessert. Like you have a starter, you have a main, and you have a dessert. You don't have dessert, dessert, yeah. dessert. <laughs> it's like you just, in you, quarantine. You, yeah, do you that. Get, <laughs> <laughs> well, quarantine over Christmas, you have a lot of dessert. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's just like you just give like give people a little taste, right? Just a little bit of salt on it. Um, you don't need to ruin it. But if, that, you do, if you don't expose them to that scenario you're talking yeah. about, then are you putting them at more risk? 
Potentially. For that right? one time, yeah. You know what I mean? It's potential too. Yeah, it's interesting. But then, yeah, and then you have the, but then the, the other, the other, line? the other argument would be the adaptability aspect of it. And what you're trying to really develop in these individuals is the, is the, having the kind of, not the right experience, but a sufficient experience. And then having them be trained enough to when they go into it, they're good. Yeah. Right? They're like, I, I, I know it's going to be hard. It's going to be bad. But I'm trained enough to do this. Mm-hmm. And there's, and to me, again, there's no magic specifically in that. Like, it's just, it's the experience and knowing you could do it, which is, that's the real benefit is that I could do it. I don't, I'm, I'm still unsure of the training benefit. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but again, that remains to be seen. We're just trying to provide you a logical example of, uh, of I guess, I guess a logical um, rationale, rationale for that. Any other examples you want to cover? Um, Scotty, why don't you do the uh, Sidney Crosby example? Hmm. Remember that one? And then you do the Kendrick Ferris one. Oh, yeah. Because those are are good examples because you got Sidney Crosby one's a real-world example of having to perform what you're saying, not going – like the example being, well, if they've never done it, how are they going to ever be able to do it? You're like – I. I think that's that's the wrong way to think of athletes and really good competitors is that that's the that's the genius of them they don't need to have done it right that that's the point like they practice variations of it but they don't really need to have done the whole thing because they're because the way that they are it's they're going to be able to adapt to it automatically mm-hmm. anyway and then the kendrick ferris one's a good training example what, i think what was the example with the same crosby thing the picking up picking a backhand back off the board third period whatever not even third period like like <laughs> overtime playoffs yeah. right like, like the, comparing that to something like and the, no an example of picking it up at the first second of his shift versus the 60th second of his shift if you know anything about hockey 60 seconds is a long ass shift yeah. and you're dead by that time yeah. Man, the, so the, the example is that like it's gonna, it's you, gonna, you have to think of you have to think of just the stick and like the stick is the same idea as the sway on the force plate mm-hmm. for those old adults so the way that you absorb that puck when you're fresh and you're Sidney Crosby, it's seamless, yeah. right? But even with Sidney Crosby, when he receives that puck at the 60-second mark, yeah. it's gonna have a. It's probably gonna. It's probably gonna bounce a bit when that puck hits the stick, yeah. um, and that's an unavoidable consequence of fatigue and what's happening to the the best player, one of the best players of all time, probably the best player of all time until if McDavid can actually <laughs> be on a decent team. <laughs> Well, and, and I think like uh, to to get a little bit more specific in that example, like maybe not catching a back a, a backhand pass off the dasher or something like that, but like he steps on the ice and he's joining the rush and he gets a pass and it's in his feet, he's gonna kick it up to his stick. Yeah, no problem. Mm-hmm. Now the play goes back down the other end. They're defending in their own zone for thirty minutes. If you know anything about hockey, that could be quite intensive. Your legs are gonna be tired. You're gonna be breathing real hard. And then you break out of the zone. Your legs aren't even just tired. They're like, Mangled. they're they're jello yeah. after one shift. <laughs> and so you're breaking out. You have yeah. a scoring chance on the other end. Sidney Crosby's on the on the, on that on the ice still. He's on that rush. He gets a pass. It's in his feet. Maybe now he doesn't take it in his feet. Maybe he lets it like go off the boards and then picks it up then because it's a more advantageous position for him to pick Which it up. Which is something he'll automatically do. He'll probably. automatically do. He won't even, like, he didn't think about it, obviously, but it's just, it's, it's it's less it's automatic, yeah. right? And it, and he'll be like, if I try and catch this in my feet, I'm going to be looking down. It's going to be in my feet. I could get my head taken off by 
this defenseman who's closing yeah. the gap on me. As opposed to if I let it go off the boards, I can pick it up on my back end. I can continue to blow by that D-man on the on the wide side and yeah. come in for a scoring opportunity. Which like that's super complex for people to understand hockey, but that's the reality of mm-hmm. Sidney Crosby's skill and ability. Not fatigued and fatigued. Like he just mm-hmm. he's world class in either scenario. He's going to do it slightly differently. He may receive it slightly differently. Um, and to someone who doesn't understand hockey or doesn't understand his his ability they won't really know why he did that in this scenario versus why he did that in that scenario but yeah it's because he's the best in the world yeah and the, like what i mentioned earlier is that the the variability movement variability and the swags the swaying example in the force way is perfect um because movement variability is a reality everything you're doing is 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 different it's always different and one great example from that TED talk we watch is the, the example of if there was no movement variability, the best basketball players in the world would never, ever miss a free throw, ever. There'd be no misses. They would just keep doing the same motion over and over. But even the hot, most highly trained people do it different every single time. But what they're trying to do with their routines is trying to make it as, as tight as possible. So it's an acceptable amount of change in how their shoulder moves, their elbow moves, their wrist moves, how much, whatever. But it still ends up with the end result of it going in the net, right? Um, Just to that, I, like we all listen to Revisionist History podcast, Malcolm Gladwell, when he did a podcast, this is a, a basketball example. There was a basketball player played in the NBA, and he did underhanded free throws. I can't remember his name, but he, he has one of the yeah. highest free throw percentages in the history of the NBA. I remember that. And like just talking about movement variability and stuff like that, it's just interesting because there's, there's potentially – potentially less variation in that movement and maybe that's why it makes it more accurate and more successful right? yeah maybe who knows and in the but in the, in the episode uh malcolm gladwell is trying to get uh collegiate basketball players to adopt this and they're like no way <laughs> <laughs> that looks ridiculous i'm not doing that but he's like it's like they've kind of proven that it's it's a more accurate way to do it but they were just like you know this is the way you shoot a free throw you shoot it overhand with one hand you don't use two hands underneath your legs not and throw cool it. It. right yeah. anyway it's just interesting <laughs> yeah interesting yeah, it is interesting. Um, and then what else do we want to mention here? Um, oh, yeah, the Kendrick yeah, Ferris thing, which I think is a good example. What yeah, was that the, like? What games was that? Oh, that was a long 13? time ago, yeah. 14, Something probably? Like that. Kendrick Ferris was at a demonstration booth at, yeah. at, at the CrossFit Games. And he, like, if Who's you Who's Kendrick Ferris? He's one of, one of the more um, successful American weightlifters, yeah. uh, Olympic weightlifters. Uh, and he, I, I can't remember what his actual snatch is and I'm sure he does hundreds of probably pow- one ninety two hundred. Yes, yeah, he's something like that. Yeah, he's a so. yeah that love- wasn't his best lift though. The clean was no, yeah, clean jerk yeah. was best, you, right? You win, you win on clean and jerk for sure for him. Um, but it's it. He's probably d- done thousands upon thousands of of snatches and muscle snatches and power snatches, especially at sixty kilos, which is the weight for um, Isabel, the the CrossFit tester. It's uh, 30 snatches at 135 pounds but they had him demonstrate it in front of everybody and good he's for just, him for doing it yeah i mean like this is not the same thing <laughs> weightlifting and isabel is not the same thing but his his critical torque would have been much higher than some average slub crossfitter um and he's sitting there tossing around 60 kilos like it's weighs nothing because to him it does weigh nothing but the thing is, you see it happen when his first 10 reps are just smooth and easy and no problem. And then he has to put the bar down. And he's all of a sudden, things have changed dramatically because the muscles that he's using 
um, for Isabel have been above critical torque for so long that it is no longer a smooth movement. So every single rep is so much more expensive for him, and then he's not trained for it. Yeah. But it's not just a, um, just not a measure of strength because mm-hmm. he's more than strong enough to keep going. Mm-hmm. It, but he's been he's not able to recover his W prime in those specific muscles in and, between and each rep. And therefore he can't even do what he wants anymore. No, and so it's just, so, it looks so that's one bad. Of the, that's one of the good examples I think of, you go back to the fatigue weightlifting thing, is you have the scenario of Kendrick Ferris and you go, what's the best way for Kendrick Ferris to snatch this weight at this point in the event? Is it one, for him to practice those events? Mm-hmm. Or is it for him to be introduced to how to do it? Yeah. I mean like that. that that's a, that's an, like if the goal was to get Kendrick Ferris better at Isabel, how do you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah. Right? Is it just for him to practice, like to, re, to basically to, have, to just practice how to do the touch and go reps and how to optimize that? Yeah, I think it is. But you ha, you're you're missing the other part of it is how do you maintain the compl- what's the other part of maintaining the complexity? Mm-hmm. Like practice is it, but resisting fatigue is also it. Yeah. Because you right? look at the the other end of that was so you do both 100, 100 kilos rich doing. Versus Klokov. And Rich looked smooth the entire way. Yeah. Klokov has a much... They basically tied. Yeah. And, and Klokov and snatches, what, 80 kilos higher yeah. than and Rich's? But they didn't look smooth at the end. Seriously. But Rich was. And I was just like, okay, that's a great example of, of yeah. the difference between potentially... Yeah. What What is the defining factor for... for, for yeah, so and you have to answer, is, is it because Rich practiced that more? Yeah. Or is it because that's who Rich is? Yeah. That's Rich's body. Right, so one of the upsides is that he's more enduring. The downsides he can't lift near as much. But the upside to being more enduring is maybe you can maintain the complexity longer, right? Or you could just recover the W prime quicker between yeah. each one. Well, one thing with the W prime, because I had to go look at that too, is that there's an uh, there seems to be a bit odd, and this is this is just for the real nerds out there, um, is that the complexity seems to recover quicker than than the ener- than the W prime does. So the complexity of the contraction will recover a little quicker than the oxygen kinetics for, per se, which is a bit odd. But either way, um, that's why they, that's why they keep saying over and over like we don't know exactly what this complexity is. Just like they say we don't know exactly what the W prime is. It's like it's a summation of everything. It's not just one thing. It's not. It's a summation of stuff, and it, there's a lot to it. Um, yeah. Anyway, that was pretty fun. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked the episode and know someone else that will, please share it with them as it helps to grow our reach. If you haven't done so already, please leave us a review wherever you listen. For questions about topics covered on the show or topics we haven't covered yet, send those questions to spiraloutpodcast at gmail.com. We do read the emails and have some topics that were submitted by listeners and we plan to cover them in the near future. You can follow at optimum underscore performance underscore training on Instagram to find out when new episodes are available. And last but not least, if you guys are in Calgary, come by and check out the gym. We offer individual design as well as personal training for those close by. If you live far, head over to optimumperformancecalgary.com to get information on remote coaching and athlete camps. Catch you guys in two weeks.